The Holy Gospel according to John, the 10th chapter. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Did you hear those wonderful words of the shepherd at the end of the gospel reading? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The promise of abundant life. What comes to your mind when you hear the adjective abundant? And then what comes to your mind when you couple that adjective with the noun life? Probably lots of things. And while we may not agree on the specifics, I think we all would acknowledge that abundant life means something overflows in us, out of us, something, something. But what is the something? Today and in the week ahead, what something will fill your life to overflowing? Well, rather than talk about abundant life in the abstract, let's take another look at today's first lesson, read from the second volume of Luke-Acts. And thank you, Art. Listening for what filled the day-to-day lives of those very first post-Easter Christians living in Jerusalem. The text says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then it goes on to say that all came upon everyone. A-W-E. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And then I like the very last verse. 
And day by day, day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That's an abundant life. Signs and wonders. And let me pause there. I apologize. There are multiple pastors here on staff here at Faith, but I don't think any of us have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders. I know I don't have those gifts. Although I have heard that on a bus trip not long ago with our youth, Pastor Jerry was driving. The air conditioning went out on the bus. He pulled off onto the shoulder of the road and got out and walked around in front, raised the hood and laid hands on the air conditioning compressor. (laughs) And cold air was restored. Maybe Jerry, Pastor Jerry, has the touch. I know I don't. But along with those signs and wonders, the text says there was a strong faith. And in each of the members of that congregation assembly, hearts were filled with gladness and generosity. They shared together regularly in worship. They joined together for common meals in fellowship. And there was always the sound of joyful praise. And then, I think we can say, Those early Christians were living the abundant life promised by the shepherd. They were living a new kind of lifestyle, an alternative lifestyle, not the kind that was going on around them in the city of Jerusalem and beyond that, the larger world. They were living it differently. What empowered them to do that? What empowered them to embrace this remarkable, new, and very, very different way of life? I think the answer to that question is easy to spot from the reading itself. Verse 43 says, All came upon them. A-W-E. All. Have you had the experience of awe recently? Maybe as you were watching the conclusion of the Kentucky Derby yesterday and realized that you won? Maybe. Well, I hope all of you know what all is. But literally in the Greek it says, fear came upon them. Fear. Well, let me tell you, dear people, in the scriptures, there are two kinds of fear. There is the fear that comes from a close encounter with God, like the fear and trembling of Moses when he encountered that burning bush. The fear and the trembling of all of the people of Israel as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai the fear and trembling of a few disciples as they stood with Jesus on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. The fear and trembling of those first disciples who arrived at the tomb on that first Easter and found it empty. Scripture is filled with examples of this first kind of fear. 
a holy fear, a holy amazement, a holy reverence in the presence of God, or as most translations say, awe. Being amazed by the awesomeness of God. On the other hand, Scripture also tells quite a few stories about another kind of fear. And I assure you, this second kind of fear does not come from the world. And if I'm sure of anything, it is this. Christians, people of faith, are not necessarily immune from this second kind of fear. It may even be that we have this fear in abundance in our hearts and in our minds and in our communities of faith. And that may be the reason why the abundant life promised by the shepherd eludes so many Christian fellowships. The title of a recent book by Scott Bader Say says it all. The title goes like this, Following Jesus in a Culture of Fear. Through the book, he makes it clear, we Christians are literally swimming in a culture of fear. We are floating in fear, far from any safe shore, or so it seems. And as Scott points out, this fear that the world brings abundantly is toxic, it is corrosive, it leads to all kind of bad outcomes. Fear-filled politics, fear-filled family life, fear-filled churches. It's there. It's corrosive. It's toxic. It's all too pervasive. And it certainly has the potential of robbing each of us of the abundant life, the joyful life, the courageous life promised by the shepherd. and out-of-control fear, you know what? It just may kill us. Let me give you an example of how deadly fear can be. Think back to September 11th, 2001. Do you remember all those images on the TV? All the speculation? Almost 3,000 people died that day. Our nation knew real fear on September 11th, 2001. You did and I did. And then that fear was compounded by the news that came just a few days later that several people had been killed by anthrax-infected mail. Fear upon fear upon fear upon fear. But what did most of us really do? Did you go out and dig a 1950s style bomb shelter in your backyard? Did you go out and spend a small fortune on survival gear and emergency supplies? Did you go down to your local hardware store and buy a case of 3M duct tape to seal all your windows and doors? No, for the most part, 
Americans did pay careful attention to the terrorist alerts that were broadcast, but we pretty much went on living, living in the same way. The kind of life we had before the attacks. We went back to work. We went on with life. Except, in one regard, in another book entitled The Science of Fear, the author Daniel Gardner notes that an immediate and measurable reaction to the 9-11 attacks was this. Most Americans avoided airports because they were unnerving. And they avoided air travel because it felt strange and dangerous. So instead of flying, many Americans drove their cars. Now here, according to Gardner, is where things get interesting. First, as most of you know, as any good statistician or risk analyst would tell you, the most dangerous part of air travel is the car or taxi ride to the airport. And early in the book, Gardner also recounts these numbers. He says that even if terrorists were hijacking and crashing one passenger jet a week here in the United States after 9-11, a person who took a flight a month for a year, one flight a month for a year, would only have a 1 in 135,000 chance of being killed in a hijacking. Did you hear that? Which, as Gardner points out, is rather trivial compared to the annual one in 6,000 odds of being killed on an American highway. Gardner goes on to cite the work of a German psychologist who patiently gathered the data on travel and fatalities in the United States for five years before 9-11 and five years after. And what did the numbers tell him? Well, it's what many expected. In a one-year period following 9-11, fatalities on American roads soared sword. And then about a year later, they settled back down to a normal level. So in 2002, people were flying again and leaving their cars in the garage. The German psychologist studied the numbers, and here is the number of Americans killed in car crashes as a direct result of switching from planes to automobiles. It was 1,595 fatalities above the normal level. 1,595 Americans died on the highways, but you didn't hear about it in the news. And then Gardner puts this in perspective. He says the number killed was just about one-half of the number killed in the 9-11 attack. 
and 391 times the total number of people killed in the anthrax attacks. Excessive fear killed those 1,595 1, car crash victims. Fear killed them. That's what happens when fear spins out of control. Maybe FDR was right long ago when he said the only thing we have to worry about sometimes is not the thing that can harm us, but the fear of it. Yes, excessive, worldly, overpowering fear can literally kill us. And I know this, it certainly has the power to squelch our holy amazement, our faith, our hope, our love, and the abundant life that flows from them. And in this large pool of fear that only the world can engender, it is so easily brought inside of Christian communities. And even inside it can get amplified and reinforced. I know this firsthand. There is real fear inside of Christian fellowships. There's fear of change. There's fear of the outsider. There's fear for the members' safety. I even heard recently a church in Alabama petitioned the government so that they could establish their own in-house police force with all the authority vested in police forces elsewhere in the state. I think maybe fear drives that. Some churches even grow and prosper because they play on the fear that runs rampant out there in the world. And what's the tragedy in all of this? Again, go back to that passage from Acts. At the end of it, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What do you think the attraction was for outsiders to join that early Christian fellowship in Jerusalem? Was it just the preaching they heard? Was it just the quality of the meals they shared in? Or the razzle-dazzle of temple worship? It was this alternative life that they wanted to taste for themselves. If we don't live differently from the world out there, I assure you, our numbers will not grow. We are called by the shepherd to be different. To take a different track through life. To let the world see this abundant life that we have. Well, if fear plays within your heart, it gnaws away at your faith and your hope and your love, Here's my first bit of pastoral advice. Turn off the darn TV. Just stop watching it. Because most of what you see and hear there is really only meant for someone else to make a profit from your fear. And then after you've given up cable for a while, snip the cord, you know, and you're still, still wrestling with fear. Here's my second bit of pastoral advice. Go get a fishing license. 
head up to the Jemez, head up to the Pecos, spend a day on one of New Mexico's lovely high mountain streams, and be amazed by the glory of God's creation. And then, thirdly, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. All came upon them. Brothers and sisters, find, find that holy fear. Find that holy amazement of the first Easter. Be amazed. Be amazed that the tomb was empty. Be amazed that the shepherd lives. Be amazed that the heavens were opened. Be amazed that we now have peace with God. Be amazed that the love that lifted Jesus from death is being poured out upon us. Be amazed that no power, no authority, no evil can separate you or me from the almighty love of an almighty God. Be amazed. Be amazed. Be amazed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.